Good morning. So we're still in Matthew chapter 5. Ooh, I was actually able to find it. No, actually, yeah. I still have to look up stuff in the Bible. Believe it or not, I know you think I just have it all memorized and can just from any place. No, I still have to look it up too. So this morning, we're looking at the section of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 37. Those 10 verses where Jesus addresses the subject of lust and divorce and oaths. And I really did not want to be here this morning. I really did not want to be the guy who stands in front of you and has to talk about lust. That's like standing up in front of a group of people and talking about humility. You're losing no matter what when it comes to those two subjects, if you're trying to be the one talking about it. So, I mean, yes, I can, how, do you, how do you stand here and not be a hypocrite talking about this subject? I have no idea. Other than just to tell you right up front, I'm a hypocrite when it comes to talking about this subject. Therefore, it has been my goal and desire as every time I've had to think about this moment to speak it in a non-judgmental, condemning way because... I'm guilty of this thing. But not just on the subject of lust, but also recognizing that there are several people in this room who've had to deal with the unpleasantness of divorce, that in that same passage, in the same moment when I get to talking about that, that I'm not speaking it in a condemning and judgmental way, but in one like what I believe our Savior was trying to speak to in these passages and the other places. He talks about it in the New Testament with the hope that, yes, this was not the way things were supposed to be, but there's still hope for it to be better than what it is. And then when we get to O's, just recognizing that, I mean, the really short answer to that paragraph on oath is just do what you say you're going to do. Really, seriously, I could just say that and be done with it. But I won't because I've already decided what I'm going to say about it. <laughs> Go, you guys are supposed to laugh at that one. I need more of you laughing out loud at my jokes. And if you can't tell the difference between me being serious and when it's a joke, just laugh anyway. <laughs> at least I'll know that and work, work on that. <sighs> Let's go to the Bible because I've tried to avoid this long enough. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, so when we think about this question of lust, it is impossible to separate it from the question of sex and human sexuality. I mean, it's true that lusting is often described as lusting after a thing, not just for another person, right? When I'm lusting for the convertible Mercedes, I'm still lusting, right? Even though it's not the same as lusting for another woman, right? I mean, like, when I was a kid, I was absolutely convinced that Linda Carter as Wonder Woman was the epitome of the perfect Baptist preacher's wife. <laughs> I was absolutely sure that that's what God meant. But, uh, you know, I found out that's not true. But nonetheless, the subject of lust is inextricably, inextricably connected and tied to the subject of sex and human sexuality. So the very first question this whole thing raises about dealing with the issue of lust is, is sex and sexual desire bad? No. No, it's a, it is a beautiful gift from God to mankind when we use it the right way. And it is also glorious, and it's a spiritually exalting gift when we use it the right way. And why? How can we say that? How can we stand up and, and in our attempts to be different from the culture around us, say that sex, when used the way God describes it and provides it to us, is both glorious and spiritually exalting because of the one flesh union that he gave us all the way back at the very beginning of time? Look from Genesis chapter 2. Okay, I'm going to read the long version. So I want you to just, just listen to this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Look, I'll get to verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2 in a second. The, the one flesh is a glorious and beautiful thing, the way God created. And look, just so we're clear about this being good, all of this took place before the temptation of Adam and Eve by the serpent. Before they sinned against God and brought what we know as sin into the world and created this fallen world that we see and live in today, everything I just described to you took place before that, when things were perfect. Therefore, we can say with absolute confidence that human sexuality and the one flesh union that God created and gave to Adam and Eve is good, and it's always been meant to be good. And just because they messed everything up with their sin in the garden doesn't mean that even this has been completely permanently messed up. Yes, it is messed up like everything else in our lives, but it is still meant as something good and can be received and used as something good. I can't get away from verse 20 in Genesis chapter 2. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Look, we all love our pets, but they can't take the place of a spouse. A pet, as much as we love them and as much as we receive from them, is not the same as what a spouse does for us. That's part of what's inherently written in between the lines here in Genesis now, of course, we live in a modern culture where, you know, pets, as we understand them, were completely foreign to anybody in the biblical time. I mean, yes, they had affection for their animals, but I don't think they felt it the way we're used to feeling it today. I mean, when you have pet insurance, I just don't think that they ever imagined that, right? I mean, Moses, when he's writing Genesis, probably isn't anticipating pet insurance. And, and he's probably not anticipating a culture that grows to the kind of affluence that we enjoy today to where we have the kind of intimate connection with our pets, right? But as great as it is, even that is a gift from God it is still not the same as human companionship, right? And so while we can find oftentimes joy, especially in singleness from the friendship and the, that we enjoy with a pet, it's still not the same. And, and why do I emphasize that? Well, the danger is, as we see, and all of us can probably think of someone like this, they decide to cut themselves off from the rest of humanity and it's just me or them and the dogs or them and the cats or them and the horses or them and the lizards. I mean, whatever the animal is, they just decide that their interaction and companionship is going to be limited 
to them and the animals, not any human relationships. And that's just not the way God created us. And it will never be sufficient in their lives. Now, we can summarize all the different reasons why that may be the case. They've experienced deep hurt of some kind and they just don't want to deal with people anymore. I feel that way every time I drive on the road somewhere. Can I just not deal with people anymore? At all. Really? I'm the pastor of a church and I don't want to deal with people when I'm driving the car. I just want to go, right? Of course, it also doesn't help that I want to go really fast and people keep me from going fast. But that's another day for a different problem. We just have our propensity to want to shift our affections from the things or the people that God has given to us for them to something else we think is safer. And that's the danger, is we think someone or something else is safer than the people God has given us or that he sends into our lives. Now, coming back to the one flesh union, it is a glorious thing because it is both physical, emotional, and spiritual. The one flesh union is just nothing can match it. And here's the weird thing. The spiritual aspect of the one flesh union can't really, it doesn't seem like, from everything I've read, from what I've tried to in studying this subject, it doesn't seem like people who are not believers in Jesus able to accomplish and reach that place of a spiritual union during the one flesh union. Non-believers seem to be able, they certainly display it clearly, the ability to do it physically and even emotionally. But that next step of making it a spiritual experience where is, is seems to be beyond their grasp. And only as part of our relationship with Christ does it seem to be able to be experienced as a complete view of the way God created. But then there's verse 25. And it's just really, verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2 is just so easy to overlook. Just kind of like jump right over it. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's just, in our modern culture, that's just stunning to me. That they could be naked and not ashamed. Well, you can say, well, yeah, but this was before the fall. Is where they understood shame. Well, that's true. But yet there also seems to be an element of regaining this aspect of of the Garden of Eden during the one flesh union, during this moment where the husband and the wife can be together naked and not ashamed of it. It's almost like during the, the experience of the one flesh union, for just a moment, we get the Garden of Eden back. At least from this standpoint, this perspective of being naked and not ashamed. I mean, our culture is just awash with this idea that nakedness and shame go together. Except 
in the one flesh union. So if sex and sexual desire is good, then what is the problem with lust? Well, to answer that, we need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I would encourage you to keep your finger in Matthew and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And keep a finger there as well, because we'll keep coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 over the next couple of minutes. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. What is the problem with lust, right? That was my question. Here is Paul's answer. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with the Spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All right? So oh, I told you to keep your fingers in 1 Corinthians 6, and then what did I do? Close my Bible, and now I've got to go look it back up again. So what is Paul's answer to what is the problem with lust? In part, his problem, the answer to his, to his answer to the question of what is wrong with lust is this whole idea of union because the purpose of, of, of sexual desire and sexuality is to enjoy the one flesh union the way God created it and because we are temples of the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit indwelling with us Therefore, any sexual activity in a way I don't know how to explain exactly involves the spirit. It's like the way Paul says it, it's kind of like if we're practicing sexuality outside of the boundaries which God has created, we're dragging him into that practice. That doesn't make sense to me because how, because God can't sin and how can I drag Jesus into sinful activity? I don't understand. But there's something, there's something that takes place within our spirits and in our relationship with the Holy Spirit that gets messed up when we do this. Okay, but Paul's talking about you know, the prostitute, and it sounds like he's describing, you know, people who are actually physically involved in physical relationships with other people of a sexual nature. Yes, that is true. And Jesus says something different. He adds more to it than just that. 
And and all of this just starts to swirl. At least for me, it all starts into this big, gigantic swirl, trying to make sense of all this. And and so, what is the problem? It's it, it's not just the physical aspects, because Jesus describes it as more than that. The the core of lust, though, the the core of the problem seems to be that any other wrong action described, as, just as in any other wrong action described by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the core problem seems to be self-centeredness and selfishness. It is an attitude that is the antithesis of what he shows us and tells us in the Beatitudes. It is also just a discontent with what God has given us. So, Okay, we understand kind of the problem with lust is self-centeredness and a discontent with what God has given us. And that by you know, going there means we're doing the antithesis of what's described in the Beatitudes. So what is the correct practice for the Christian? For us as believers, what is the right way to exercise and practice the gift of sexuality? Well... Paul once again gives us great guidance here in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Notice that Paul doesn't just make this about the guys. He, he makes this about guys and gals in this passage. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps for agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that, purpose clause, so that, Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And look, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. This is the church in Corinth. I mean, Corinth would make most of Las Vegas blush and be embarrassed. We're not talking about just kind of your average run-of-the-mill sexual frivolity. I mean, they were way out there and it was everywhere there was no escaping it when you're in Corinth I mean look when you're you're walking down the street in Corinth and every other temple and there were lots of them to false gods has temple prostitutes it's kind of hard not to see it right and you've spent the majority of your life thinking that's normal and it's okay It's normal that it exists, and it's okay that people do that. It's also normal that I participate in it. If that's been your life for the majority of your adult life, and then you come along and you have the experience of hearing about the gospel for the first time and coming to faith in Christ, and okay, so I got to live differently is what you're saying, Paul. And okay, but I've always lived this way in how I practice my sexuality. And you're telling me I got to change and do something different. 
Okay. That's not going to be easy. I think it's going to be easy, right? I mean, hey, I'm a grown adult man. I can control myself or I'm a grown adult woman and I can control myself. Except we all learn very rapidly and very quickly that bad habits are not easily broken. And yet that's exactly what Paul is saying to them. And so my point here is the struggles we experience today in our culture and society are not worse than what they, the Corinthian Christians had to struggle with. And if Paul could say it to them and expect them to do it, he can say it to us and expect us to do it. But like with everything, Paul brings us back to the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not, look, I don't need to just kind of dig in with both fingernails into the piece of wood here and just white knuckle it all the way through. No, that is a guaranteed recipe for disaster. When we try to white knuckle it through our struggles, it is guaranteed that we are going to not succeed doing it that way. What will succeed is allowing the spirit to transform us from the inside out. But that usually takes time. And so mistakes will be made. Which brings us to this whole subject of dealing with our struggles over sexual desire. Because look, I mean, we go back, here we go. We go back to Matthew chapter 5 right here in this passage, this paragraph. And Jesus says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh God, are you serious? You can't be serious. Do you know how, do you know how impossible what you just said? Jesus, do you have any idea how impossible you just said? Yes, I think he did. Wait, I mean, I get no credit because I wanted her but didn't actually take her? I don't get any credit for that? No, no. <sighs> this is too hard. You ask too much. You ask too much. Yes, yes, we are. I mean, on my best days, I'm lucky to make it 15 seconds. Yet, this is what Jesus says he expects from us. So, now we start to really understand what I said a minute ago that the core of lust is self-centeredness and selfishness. That, that's why Jesus says that even just thinking about it is equal to doing it. Because in our hearts and in our minds, we've done it already. It is better that we physically don't carry through with those desires there certainly are much greater consequences in our lives and in our relationships when we carry through physically and carry out those desires. But that selfishness that's driving it is the problem. And look, Jesus was operating in a culture in which 
as you know, the Pharisees were great at finding exceptions when they wanted them. Right? And they had, and this is no exception. They had come up with all these rules that defined sexual activity. But if you do this with a woman, you've committed adultery. But if you do this, it still feels good, but you're not guilty of adultery. You got to be kidding me. But, but that's what they did. And so Jesus is talking directly to that culture who thinks they can, who think they can play these games that if I do it, but I only do it this way, I'm not guilty of breaking the law and doing anything wrong. And he's saying, nope, not true. And he does the same thing again in other places. I mean, he gets really specific with them in other places. You know, seriously, honestly, if I, if I wanted to really address the question of biblical human sexuality, it would probably take me about four or five sermons to do this. So recognize I'm just not going to cover everything you wish that I would talk about. I'm probably already talking about things you wish I wouldn't talk about. I'm talking about things I wish I wouldn't talk about. And so just understand this is incomplete in what I'm presenting to you this morning. So how do we deal with this? We, we understand that, that Jesus says just the intent and the desire is guilty of breaking the law about adultery. Oh, so we just have to admit that this is true for us almost often. Not almost, but all, that it's true for us often. And, and perhaps, perhaps you have the experience of it being every day. But this admission is not one that should bring shame and guilt. Okay? Yes, we should feel conviction where we have sinned against our Savior. But conviction and shame are not the same. And they never, ever should be. Our culture is overwashed with the idea of shame. And even shame itself has been corrupted into something other than what Scripture describes. And so when we talk about shame in the modern day context, we have to recognize that it's it's shame that's not meant by what God talks about with the word shame. Nonetheless, that's the way it impacts us. So it should not bring the admission that we have to struggle with this reality and our own sinful desires. It should not bring shame and guilt. It should bring humility. Humility to acknowledge just how much we need God's forgiveness and the Holy Spirit's transformation within our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Humility to speak cautiously and gently with those who've fallen into physical adultery. Because we, like the Pharisees, can play these games where I've not really done that. Therefore, I'm better than you. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You're just as bad as they are because you wanted to do it. So this idea of speaking cautiously and gently with those who've fallen into physical adultery and to not have a self-righteousness that in any way views ourselves superior to the friend, the brother, or the sister, when we do have that kind of self-righteousness, it just smacks of the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus so railed against with the Pharisees. And I think that's probably the in this incomplete moment 
of not being able to really deal with this subject completely. That's, that's the place where I want to leave you. Our acknowledgement that our own sinful desires are equal to actually committing the physical act itself brings us to a place where we should have humility and, and not, not carry any kind of sense of self-righteousness against those when talking to those who've fallen into physical adultery. Now, the divorce, right? You think, I'm through the difficulty of talking about lust, so now, that, now it's cruising easy sailing here the rest of the sermon. No. It's like, really, I don't want to talk about this either. I, I've, I've not been divorced, ever. I've wanted to be at times. I've wanted to commit murder at times. We can all laugh at that because we've all felt that in the moments of our relationships with our spouses. So if I've never divorced, you know, what is it that makes this so uncomfortable for me to stand up here and talk about it? Because there's people in the room that have been divorced. Maybe there's people in the room that are wanting to be divorced. So why did Jesus himself even bring up this question of divorce? Because again, the Pharisees had got really great at playing games. In, in, in Jesus' day, many of you are aware of this. This is nothing new for a lot of you. The Jewish view of marriage was that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for basically any reason. You've heard the extreme example. Some of you probably heard the extreme example that she could burn the bread on the, the you know, the burn the cakes on the, the stone oven. And if that was enough reason, that was justified divorce in their view. What? Why do you divorce your wife just because she burnt the bread? It's like stupid. Well, the answer to my question is kind of self, is, is one that I give often. There are two reasons people do things. One that sounds good and the real one. Burning the bread was the one that sounded good. So to really understand this question of, of divorce, we have to look at Matthew chapter 19. Yeah, don't, don't lose 1 Corinthians. We're coming back there. We're coming back there. But turn to Matthew chapter 19. I knew I should have split these up. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea uh, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, well, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? You can hear the indignation in their voice, this sentence. Well, Jesus, if you're so smart, why did Moses give the command for a certificate of divorce? And Jesus replies to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Oh, man. Really? Really? 
So one of the keys here in Matthew chapter 19 is to understand, again, this is not, you know, Jesus doesn't exactly say this, but everything that we can gather seems to be the case that Jesus isn't talking about a one-time affair between one spouse and another person, but more so this idea of the habitual or unrepentant adultery seems to be the idea that justifies divorce. And that the one-time event followed by genuine repentance and change is not what Jesus is referring to as far as a justified grounds for divorce. Okay, and so, you know, again, I feel like I need four sermons just to deal with this subject, right? He says this idea that only for that sexual immorality, only for the grounds of adultery that he uses there back in chapter 5 in verse 32, that everything else somehow is not legitimate. Now, in addition to that, we would say today, and I think rightly so, that physical abuse and abandonment are justified grounds. And certainly in the case of abandonment, when you have a spouse who abandons one, if not immediately, sooner or later, is going to enter into an adulterous relationship with another person. And so that's, you know, abandonment along with the physical abuse and you could even argue emotional abuse seem to also be justified reasons for divorce because it is self-centered at its core. Those actions are caring about nobody but yourself. In fact, they're worse than not caring about the person. You're actually hating them in the process. Okay, so what about this whole thing of marriage, remarriage, and adultery? So should a believer ever divorce at all? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses that question too. Oh, I just can't get away from it. i got to read it. I know I'm late. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry enough to change my mind though. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is written, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So even in the case of a person who is married to an unbeliever, whether they marry that person knowing they're an unbeliever or that person comes to faith after the marriage begins, but their spouse still doesn't trust in Christ, Paul says, yeah, sorry, unmarried, unbelieving spouse isn't a good reason to justify a divorce. In fact, he says, suck it up, buttercup. Maybe this is the hard path God's chosen for you to bring your spouse to faith in Christ. But if this unbelieving spouse walks away and abandons you, okay, fine. They did that. 
The abandonment justifies the divorce. All right, so, okay, we found some situations. We kind of understand where it is and isn't allowed. But does this mean that a divorced person cannot remarry? Right? If you're, if you're a believer and your spouse divorces you and you've wanted them not to do this, but they do it anyway, are you stuck in singleness for the rest of your life? Again, Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, going back to verses 8 and 9, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Remember, he's talking to the people in Corinth, the ones who would make... Las Vegas blush and turn their eyes, right? So it's a supercharged, a sexually supercharged culture. And he's saying it's better if you don't marry. But if you need to, I would rather see you married than participate in sexual immorality and practices that are not what the believer is supposed to do. So what does that mean for the divorced person, right? Paul says widows and singles, all right? So... Logically, it doesn't make any sense that the only way you can be called a theological widow is if your spouse dies. That does, obviously that's clearly the main idea behind a widow or widower, but there's a practical widowness to divorce. And so it makes sense that this passage, that when the divorce has been justified biblically by sexual immorality, which is always the end result of abandonment, right? Always, never fails. You can talk to anybody who has a spouse that left them and initiated the divorce and guaranteed it may take six months, it may take a year, but that person who wanted to be out of the marriage is into a relationship with somebody else. So then the person is free to remarry. Does it mean that if a divorced person who do remarry, are they adulterers, right? So like you're a natural widow and you meet a person later who's divorced and you decide to marry that guy, are you guilty of adultery because he was divorced? Because that's what Jesus said, that if you marry a divorced person, you're guilty of adultery. We come back to the same place where we were a minute ago. Is it... A, was this before conversion? You know, did the divorce happen before either one of them knew Jesus as their Savior? That changes everything. Has the possibility of reconciliation been settled? There's no chance these two are going to ever reconcile. And is there a clear adultery by the divorced person? Meaning they've already entered into another relationship with someone else, or maybe they've even remarried someone else. All of those point to an answer that if the believer who did not want the divorce has been operating faithfully and honestly before the Lord and the person that left them has clearly crossed these lines I've been laying out, I just don't see how marrying someone like that is adultery. Now, granted, Jesus didn't give us these clear, absolute definitions but he never gives us clear, absolute definitions most of the time. He gives us these principles, right? We want the rule. Lord Jesus, give me the rule I need to follow here so that I can marry this person. Not going to happen. You're going to get, here's the principle that I want you to understand. Well, 
What about this situation? I don't know. What does the Bible say? What do the people who know the Bible and who have spiritual maturity, what do they say? That's what we get stuck with. I shouldn't use that word. Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, Jesus. I shouldn't have said what we get stuck with. That's where he chooses to leave us. Because guess what? If I don't have a rule I can follow, I got to actually talk to God about this. But if I have a rule, I don't need to ask God nothing. You look, it says right here, right here. You said right here that if she did this, I could divorce her. I don't need to talk to you about it. Okay, wait a second, friend. We got a problem we need to deal with. Maybe you're, maybe you're wanting to divorce this person is justified, but we've got a bigger problem you and I need to talk about first. You don't want to talk to God about this at all. You just want to go do what you want to do without asking God what he thinks you should do. There's the real problem. And that's the one that gets us into trouble the most often is I don't want to ask God what I'm supposed to do. I just want to go do it. That's why I think he linked divorce and lust so close together. They end up being the same thing. I don't want to talk to you about what I'm supposed to do, Jesus. I just want to go do what I want to do because I like it or it feels good or whatever. And Jesus doesn't let us get away with that. (sighs) I even have more to talk about on this subject. I'm just going to have to skip it. I'm already wore out. So I'm imagining y'all are wore out listening to it. So let me just quickly address this subject of oaths. The first thing to understand that Jesus is addressing more than just making a promise or swearing. He's also condemning this game that the Pharisees were famous for. You know, this idea of making a promise that they had no intentions of keeping. And we've read about that. I think I pointed it out last week in Matthew about if you swear by the gold of the altar, the gold of the temple, the oath matters. But if you swear by the temple itself, it doesn't count. That's stupid. But that's what they would do. What Jesus is doing here by including this section on oaths is he's trying to restore the original intent of oaths and keeping a promise from the Mosaic law. Listen, I'm just going to read these really fast. Listen to this. Leviticus 19.12, right in the middle of Moses reciting to the people the Ten Commandments, you shall not swear by my name falsely, meaning God's name, and so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. Okay, wait a second. Let that sink in for a second. God himself looks at the Israelites and says, I am the Lord. He's identifying himself. He's giving an identity statement about himself and linking it to keeping your word. Whoa, wait a second. You mean that if I don't want to keep a promise, your your identity, my Let that sink in. He identifying himself as the Lord links it to keeping your word. Numbers verse uh, 30, verse two, if a man vows to the, a vow to the Lord or swears to an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he should not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Notice here, Moses did not say anything about the gold of the altar. He said, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. 
And actually, this wasn't Moses talking to the people. This was what God said to the people. This is the voice of God speaking those words. Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. That seems like pretty clear language to me. I really struggle with understanding how the Pharisees could stand up and say, if you make a promise, an oath by the temple, it doesn't count. It's like I'm holding my finger behind my back. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, well, then, buddy, you got to keep that promise. What? What? How? How do you get that from Deuteronomy 23? What do you got? How do you get that? Because they don't want to talk to God. They want to do what they want to do. They want to play their games. They can do what they want to do. And it's okay. So that's the game they want to play. That's what they want to do. What are we to do? Just keep your word. That's it. Just do what you say you're going to do or don't do what you say you're not going to do. Just keep your word. That's the point. That's all there is to it. Seriously, the entire theological understanding of this entire paragraph on oaths is keep your word. That's all you need to know. Everything else is just gravy that I've tried to explain to you. Okay. I even got through the end of it. But it still feels undone, doesn't it? Because these subjects of divorce and lust can't be dealt with in 20 minutes, 30 minutes. They take a lifetime to deal with. We have to deal with the real desires of our hearts, not just what we physically do with our hands. And so they'll always feel unfinished. And what are we to do? Well, we have to do the same thing we've done with all the previous things we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount and all the things we're going to do in the future studying the Sermon on the Mount. We have to acknowledge with humility our fallen state and our desire to play games with ourselves and the people around us and admit humbly that we want to do what we want to do and then talk to Jesus about it. So if you're struggling with some of these desires, you need to talk to Jesus. Yes, you can talk to me or your other close friends who are mature believers, but we're like second, third choice of who you want to talk to. First person you want to talk to is Jesus. Let the Spirit witness to you the truth you need to hear, even if it's the truth you don't want to hear. Because when I'm selfish and self-centered, I don't want to hear no truth that Jesus got to tell me. I just want to hear, yes, go ahead and do it. That's what I want to hear. But in his mercy and kindness, he will come to us not with this condemning hammer of judgment and punishment, 
But instead, he will come to us with the gentle hand that says, No, my son, or no, my daughter, this is not what I've designed for you, nor is it what's best for you. Trust me and come back this way with me. And, and that moment, we've got a hard decision to make. And so every moment, every day, I have to ask myself, am I willing to take his hand and go back with him? Or am I just going to do it my way? Start playing Elvis wide open as loud as I can. I did it my way. Now, my understand that our Savior wants you to come back with him. And he's coming to you gentle and meek and mild because that's what the Beatitudes call us to because that's what he's called to. In these struggles, the meek and merciful Savior comes to us offering us hope and a way out of our desires and real change. So it is in that hope that we're going to pray for and ask him for. Lord, thank you that on our worst days, you are still merciful and kind to us. And that you come to us meek and mild, offering us a way home with you and can transform us into people who hunger for thirst and righteousness instead of selfish, self-centered, self-satisfaction. And Lord, I ask that you do that for all of us, every single one of us. Lord, you know how desperately I need that how I need you to change me so that I hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of my wants. But I also pray, Jesus, you would help me to see that the things I'm wanting are because I don't trust what you've given me. That that's not enough. So help me to see that you are enough. In Jesus' name, amen.